You're listening to episode 10 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors Tanner Bean read Authentically Me and Authentically You, Why Religious Liberty and LGBT Rights Are Not So Different. The Reverend Cassandra Karkoff-Williams with Reflections on Sin and Redemption. And Reverend John Zuring reads his essay, The Quietest, Loneliest, and Most Painful Illness. Tanner Bean is a staff attorney to the Honorable Judge Molly Husky of the Idaho Court of Appeals, law fellow with the Fairness for All Initiative, public deliberation and engagement expert with the Tolerance Means Dialogues, and a 2018 fellow of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Tanner also administrates a Facebook discussion page, Protecting Religious Liberty for people of faith curious about current events and the fundamentals of religious liberty, a link to which can be found in the show notes. Here he is reading his piece for the Christian citizen, Authentically Me and Authentically You, Why Religious Liberty and LGBT Rights Are Not So Different. I've been able to be my authentic self all my life, but not everyone is so lucky. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, My faith is the preeminent part of who I am. My commitment to Jesus Christ pushes me to love my neighbor. My belief in eternal families motivates my family culture. And my knowledge of the loving God who doles out endless second chances gives me daily hope. I take my faith with me everywhere I go. To church, yes, but also to work, the grocery store, the mall, in planes, trains, and automobiles, and to my favorite restaurants. I am blessed to live in a country and a time where this is possible. Latter-day Saints were not always so welcome in our country. In the past, Latter-day Saints were tarred and feathered, church property was seized by the government, and the faithful were targeted by an extermination order from the governor of Missouri. They fled discrimination, eventually settling in what was then Mexico. No one should face such discrimination in our society. That belief has moved me to become an advocate of religious liberty, not just for those of my faith, but for everyone. As an advocate, I have been privileged to work with many courageous and intelligent people, like those at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, who kindly invited me into their fold last summer. While working in this area, I have become keenly aware of those positioning religious liberty against LGBT non-discrimination, and vice versa. I am convinced that this is a false conflict. At the root of the LGBT movement is the search for something that people of faith also cherish, authenticity. In other words, to live freely according to one's moral code in public and in private, to be unburdened by others' judgments of what constitutes the good life, and to thrive peacefully alongside others with different ideas. You might call that equality. Because the law has protected my ability to express my authentic self along the lines of religion, it is unsurprising to me that the LGBT community seeks those same protections. Indeed, it does not surprise me that an architect wishes the law to protect him from being fired from his firm for being gay. It does not surprise me that a lesbian couple wishes the law to protect them from being turned away from an apartment complex. It does not surprise me that a transgender woman wishes the law to protect her from being shown the door at a hardware store as she's looking for a wrench. Although my faith teaches me that marriage between a man and a woman is God's ordained union and that gender is inherent to the soul, I believe that the law should protect the LGBT community so that they may express their authentic selves just as freely as I do. In much of America, 
the law provides no such certainty. In 2015, my church recognized that people of faith and the LGBT community were both seeking after authenticity. Church leaders called legislators to find ways to show respect for others whose beliefs, values, and behaviors differed, while making sure no one would be forced to deny or abandon their own beliefs, values, and behaviors in the process. The church pushed for strength in laws related to LGBT issues in the interest of ensuring fair access to housing and employment, and public accommodation in hotels, restaurants, and transportation. To me, this move was consistent with Christian compassion as found in scripture. In the Bible, a lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, disregarding the cultural and ethnic identity of the man lying wounded on the path and that of his Samaritan rescuer. Jesus teaches the lawyer that every man is his neighbor and all are deserving of mercy. In the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ that Latter-day Saints study is an additional example of Christian compassion. There, a prophet named Alma records how the faithful acted in a period of continual peace. They were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. I have been impressed by legislators across the country who have engaged in the hard work of dialogue, attempting to provide the freedom to be authentic to all people. The Utah legislature is an sterling example. After many heart-stretching discussions, Utah passed two laws protecting the LGBT community from discrimination in housing and employment, while also strengthening the state's protections for faith communities. They called it fairness for all. One transgender Utah said Utah's laws saved her life. Legislators in other states remain engaged in similar dialogues. For example, this year in Idaho, legislators, stakeholders, and community leaders from the faith and LGBT communities gathered together for a two-day summit on how to rule out discrimination in their state. Participants were thoughtful about how religious exemptions, which safeguard American pluralism by allowing minority viewpoints, should only be extended when religion is relevantly at play. The summit made clear that working together to protect both the LGBT community and the faith community in the same law is the best way to protect self-determination. Careful consideration, compassion, and respect for an individual's authentic self expose the false conflict between religious liberty and LGBT non-discrimination for what it is, misunderstanding. As we, like legislatures around the nation, engage in dialogue in our churches and communities on these topics, empathy will do most of the work in separating fact from political fiction. Although we all live by different creeds, I hope that continued conversation will yield protections across the country so that Lutheran, Jewish, and gay construction workers can fully express their identities on the same job site without fear of retribution from their employer. I hope that a lesbian couple, a Seventh-day Adventist family, and an atheist will all be approved to live in the same building without regard for their moral codes. I hope that I, a Latter-day Saint, can stand in line at the grocery store and watch a transgender man buy ingredients for spaghetti dinner without question from the cashier. I suspect that's how it will feel to be authentically and fully American. The Reverend Cassandra Carcuff-Williams is Director of American Baptist Home Mission Society's Discipleship Ministries 
and author of Learning the Way, Reclaiming Wisdom from the Earliest Christian Communities. Her essay, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Reflections on Sin and Redemption, was first published by The Christian Citizen in March 2018 and was taped last week for the Justice Mercy Faith podcast. For three summers during college, I worked as a counselor at a Christian camp. Each day began with Bible classes for children, followed by a variety of outdoor education opportunities. One morning, while gathering fishing gear, I was accosted by three distressed elementary-aged boys. It's all our fault, they exclaimed. Boys are the ones who passed down sin. They had been schooled that morning on inherited corruption and original sin. The concept of original sin was introduced to Christianity by Augustine in the 4th century. This theological proposition, along with its companion notion of penal substitutionary atonement, a theory formalized by John Calvin in the 16th century, remain influential in multiple streams of contemporary Western Christianity. The premise is that Adam and Eve's guilt are handed down to subsequent generations through something akin to a sin gene that condemns all humans to a state of sinfulness and eternal damnation, a situation that could be remedied only by Jesus suffering the death penalty we deserve. As Jonathan Edwards expressed it in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, there is no one of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can all, most easily do it. They deserve to be cast in hell. Justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. This theology is flawed in its conception of God, Jesus, sin, and atonement. Original sin and penal substitutionary atonement presuppose a God who is harshly punitive who in response to an ancient choice by two people at the beginning of time, punishes the rest of humanity forever. In contrast to the assertion of 1 John 4, 8, that God is love, and to Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of wrongs, this perspective presents a God who keeps a ledger of sins until our guilt is expiated and or God is appeased through torture and death. In this theology, we find not a unified triune God, but multiple deities, or at the very least, a single deity working at cross purposes. One wrathful and demanding divine being is pitted against another who loves and forgives freely, even before his blood is spilt. The concepts of original sin and penal substitutionary atonement represent a narrowing of understandings of Jesus sin, and salvation. For example, the traditional sinner's prayer demands that folks enter the faith from a single point of need, personal sin, with a single understanding of Jesus, forgiver of sins, and through a single dramatic conversion experience. By contrast, the earliest Christian communities encountered Jesus at their pressing points of need, beginning a journey of ongoing conversion. For the Palestinian communities, which longed for liberation from Roman oppression, Jesus was the messianic son of man and coming judge. 
for the Jerusalem community, with its vision of a messianic age of radical interdependence, Jesus was the risen, crucified one who interpreted Torah and created community. The early Pauline communities, racked by the confusions of polytheism and servitude to a capricious human Lord, met in Jesus a single true Lord who was the incarnation of a benevolent creator. Original sin and penal substitutionary atonement overlook the breadth and depth of sin and atonement. With their focus on the individual, this theology overlooks the full impact of the fall and therefore overlooks the full impact of redemption. Did Jesus die simply because someone used a bad word or had inappropriate sexual relations? Or in fact, is something much larger being addressed? When humanity fell, all the created order was affected. Violence, suffering, discord, and death came not only to human beings, but to all of creation. So too must the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus affect all of reality. Beyond individual morality and personal salvation lie a cosmic problem and a cosmic solution. This truth is lost in narrowed understandings of sin and atonement, perhaps by design, as theologian Matthew Fox suggested in a 2015 interview. He said, it's no coincidence that Augustine lived in the 4th century, which is when Christianity took over the Roman Empire. If you're going to run an empire, original sin is a useful idea because it keeps your subjects confused about whether they even have a right to exist. When you've tied yourself in knots about whether you're deserving or not, you fall into line. You seek approval from outside authorities. You do as you're told. You subjugate others in the name of Christ, which is what the Christian empire has been doing for centuries. Traditional efforts to literally scare the hell out of people can and have caused significant damage, especially to children. The notion that true conversion hinges on a single emotional experience in which sin is confessed and atonement received is a case in point. As 19th century theologian and critic of American revivalism Horace Bushnell maintained, the approach leaves children spiritually disenfranchised, rendering them guilty of sin while they lack the developmental maturity to undergo such an experience of conversion. Nearly 40 years after my time as a camp counselor, from which I have many happy memories, I continue to think of those young boys at the fishing shed. They were deeply disturbed by a theology that proclaimed them not only to be sinners, but also to be responsible for the sinfulness of subsequent generations. I wonder, and I pray, that those boys had later teachings about, and more importantly, experiences with, the gentle hands of a loving God. The Rev. John Zering has served United Church of Christ congregations for 22 years as a pastor in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. He is the author of more than 30 books. His most recent is Get Your Church Ready to Grow, 
a guide to building attendance and participation, and is available at judsonpress.com. He joins us this week with his latest essay, The Quietest, Loneliest, and Most Painful Illness. Mental health awareness? Those who suffer from mental health issues are so aware that there is hardly a moment of the day when it does not dominate their thoughts. For roughly 20% of the American population, that's over 46 million people, mental illness can be a living hell for them, their caregivers, family, and friends. Mental illness has touched my family, and perhaps yours has experienced it too. The list of celebrities, athletes, writers, artists, professionals, and everyday people who have experienced it seems endless. Do a quick internet search for famous people with mental illness to discover many others who share this dark valley. In history, those who may have had mental illness condition include Abraham Lincoln, Ludwig van Beethoven, Michelangelo, Charles Dickens, Charles Darwin, Winston Churchill, Leo Tolstoy, and Isaac Newton. It is the loneliest of diseases. Mental illness, like depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, and panic disorder, touches so many lives. It does not care about how much education you have, how well raised you were, how much money you've got, how successful you've been, what kind of person you are, or where you go to church. It is the quietest of illnesses. Sometimes we do not know we have it, or we do not acknowledge it. We do not talk about it much. We don't want to. Few people know or understand. Yet the hurting is profound, confusing, and lonely. If you have cared for a member of your family or a friend who suffers from mental illness, you have probably considered that any physical illness seems preferable to a mental illness. With a physical illness, people visit, they send cards, bring meals, offer prayers, and demonstrate their care, support, and attention. But with a mental illness, you do not know what is happening, where it is going, and you are not completely sure that maybe it's not something you did. What will people think? And so you build walls and keep it closed up inside, where it is so very lonely. Thankfully, the stigma is declining, but it is still present. The stigma is one of the greatest enemies to mental health awareness. Stigma is an illness too. Let us, people of God, pledge ourselves to slaying that awful giant of stigma. Wherever we can, let us become healers of this illness so that all God's sheep may enjoy an abundant life. Consider three realities about mental illness. First, mental illness is a disease, not a failure of character and not a failure of faith. Scientists are discovering that brain disorders are largely a matter of genetics and biochemistry. Eric Kandel, MD, a Nobel Prize-winning laureate and professor of brain science at Columbia University, believes it's all about biology. All mental processes are brain processes, and therefore all disorders of mental functioning are biological diseases, he says. The brain is the organ of the mind. Where else could mental illness be if not in the brain? Mental illness is a disease. It is not your fault. You did not do anything wrong. It is not a result of your upbringing. 
It is not a consequence of poor choices, being stupid, a bad attitude, or not being able to get your act together. Mental illness is not a failure of your faith. The fact that you cannot pull yourself out of the hole is not a reflection of your weakness. When you pray to get better and you do not, it is not a sign that God does not care. When you have deep, dark thoughts that you cannot tell anyone about, it is not because you did something bad or because you were a bad person. God is not mad at you. God is not trying to teach you a lesson. God is not trying to punish you. The loving parent that Jesus taught about does not work that way. Second, mental illness can be managed. It might not get cured, but it can become managed. Through new discoveries in therapies and prescription drugs, many people with mental illness are able to live satisfying, effective, successful, and even happy lives. There is hope. With help, life can become not only possible, but pleasurable. And yet some with mental illness do not seek help for a number of reasons. There is denial. Some believe that they are quite independent and they will fix what is broken themselves. Some resist admitting that they have a problem that needs help. Some have a lack of hope in the mental health profession. Some wonder if the path to recovery is paved with unending medical bills. Not all insurance policies cover mental illness, and most that do only cover a part. And yet, many with mental illness have sought professional help, and they are managing well. That is one of the keys, understanding that you do not necessarily get rid of it, but that you learn to manage. There is hope, and there is help. Mental illness can benefit significantly if treated. Third, what works with regular depression may not work with clinical depression. Most people get depressed. These folks tell themselves, come on, pick yourself up, get life, change your attitude. You can do it. Clinically depressed people may try to say those same things, but nothing happens. Then they may blame themselves or feel that their faith is too weak or just figure that faith does not work. Faith does not banish clinical depression any more than it banishes cancer, canker sores, or cataracts. You can't pray away a mental health condition, notes the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So do not blame yourself or God when prayers, hymns, sermons, scriptures, or even encouraging friends do not seem to change your mood. Mental illness is a chemical imbalance in your insides. It's a disease, and it is one that can often be treated. Some of God's sheep have a mental illness. About one out of five. We understand so little about it. In many ways, we are still in the dark ages. Mental illness is a quiet, lonely, and dark valley. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. For people with a mental illness, that may be one of the most important messages in the Bible. You are not alone. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, Tanner Bean, the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff-Williams, and the Reverend John Zering. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. 
We'll be back in the first half of May with new episodes of Justice, Mercy, Faith. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kagey. Thanks for listening.